This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail or you can find me at Facebook at either Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Welcome back. I want to thank everybody for listening. I want to thank you for the comments and for the emails. I also want to thank my Facebook buddy TC. He encouraged me to come back and record an episode a week earlier than I planned to. Left me some nice comments at Facebook. So thanks for that. TC, you know who you are. I was reminded this week about one of my favorite periods in all my time in the church, and that was when I taught primary. I taught primary for six and a half years straight, usually rotating between the two classes that one of my two daughters were in, but also teaching a year or two classes that they were not in. It was really one of the most formative experiences in my life. There was one boy that I taught, Joseph. Joseph was and is still on the autism spectrum. He has Asperger's. I started teaching Joseph when he was seven years old. I taught him all through primary. I taught him as a young man, as he grew into young adulthood, and I remain friends with him today. He's 21 years old now. When he was little, they didn't think he'd ever be able to live independently. His parents worried that he would never be able to function. But about four months ago, he got a job here in the Boston area at a medical device factory, got his own apartment. He owns a car. And for all intents and purposes, he's living independently. It's quite inspiring, the progress and the development that he's experienced. The reason I bring up Joseph is because I think church exists for people like Joseph. Now, not in a way that I think most of us would reactively think. I think most people would say, yes, church is perfect for a person like Joseph. Provides a place for them to come and be served, get support, provides the virtual village, if you will, that can help raise Joseph. It's a place where Joseph's parents can find some relief, some respite, some support from others. And all that's true, I guess, though I'm not so sure how much the ward really helped raise Joseph. But I think church exists for people like Joseph. So that people like Joseph have a forum to teach the church members. To teach those people coming and attending. Joseph teaches the church. And people like Joseph do the same thing. I say this because most people were not quite sure how to interact with Joseph. He would blurt things out. He was very frank. Too frank. Anything that he thought he said, whether it was socially appropriate or not, he would fall asleep, he would yawn if something was boring, he would guffaw uproariously if something was funny, he would ask inappropriate questions. If someone's hair started to get gray or if they put on a little bit of weight, he would note that too. Your hair's looking gray, you're looking kind of fat this week. And most people just didn't know how to interact with someone like that. He made many people feel uncomfortable or awkward, or they didn't know the right thing to say. They, even some of the most socially smooth people, the most mature, the most socially capable, were sometimes confused by Joseph, didn't know what to say, felt funny, felt awkward. Their discomfort was obvious to onlookers. So in that sense, Joseph's mere existence was sort of like a litmus test 
and it revealed something about each member, revealed where they were emotionally and spiritually, revealed their true skills in dealing with people. And most people, frankly, would be polite to Joseph, but wanted to get away from Joseph as fast as they could. They didn't want to deal with Joseph. Dealing with him was a little harder. But over time, as Joseph grew from a boy of five, six, seven, eight, nine, to a teenager of 14, 15, and ultimately to a young man of 20, 21 years old, the ward collectively became much more comfortable with Joseph, got to know him, got to love him, and kind of changed at least those old timers who had been around during the entire period that Joseph was there. They learned his quirks, they learned to laugh with him, and they slowly allowed him to influence them. And what was his influence on them? Well, their hearts were softened. The ability to talk to someone who was very different than they were grew in many of them. They learned not to dance around talking about things that maybe would be considered impolite. You know, like sometimes you'd have to speak very directly to Joseph, and and they learned how to do that in a kind of a nice way, but a direct way, had to speak directly. So people learned not to dance around issues with Joseph. The ward collectively changed, slowly, over time, organically. And Joseph taught them new skills just by being himself, just by being there, being around. So in that sense, the church was Joseph's forum. He was the teacher. He provided opportunities to practice, to learn, to grow. And he was wired in such a way that he never held grudges. He never made anyone feel badly when they made mistakes. He didn't notice. He didn't care. He forgot. He forgave. He was blindly innocent about some things. And so in that sense, he was a perfect instructor where members of the ward could try time and time and time again to understand, have more compassion, say the right thing, do the right thing. Now, no one's going to write a biography about Joseph. No one's going to get up on Sunday and talk about how wonderful he is. There'll be no ceremony or opportunities for special attention, special acknowledgement, like we give our bishops when they're called or when they're released, like we give our stake presidents when they're called or released, Relief Society presidents when they're called or released. Certainly nothing on the ceremonial scale of the installment of a new general authority or an apostle. In fact, I suspect most people who were affected by Joseph don't even realize that they were even affected by him. It was so organic, so subtle, relatively slow over time. Yet viscerally, instinctively, all were changed by Joseph. All knew the next time they were in a grocery store or an airport around the city street and they saw someone like Joseph in trouble or ran across someone like Joseph behind the cash register or driving a cab, they knew how to treat that person better. How they acquired this skill? Well, I think most people in the war don't even ever think about it. Yet none of them would have that growth, that increased ability had they not at least been going through the motions of coming to church and at, least, and at least doing the minimum, doing what they were supposed to, even if they were sleepwalking through it. The reason I bring up the story of Joseph 
and the slow effects that his membership in the ward slowly produced among members of the ward is because I've been getting some emails from some folks about why I attend church. And one of the reasons I attend church is because I want to learn from people like Joseph. I want to know things about me that need some development. And there are a lot of teachers at church. They're not all like Joseph, of course. Some of the teachers at church are the wealthy and prominent, the prideful. For some of us, those are the hardest people to love, to interact with. Other teachers at church are those with a different background, racial, economic. Our teachers are the people we home teach. Our teachers are the people we visit teach. Our teachers can be the family that's broken, mixed. People who've suffered divorce. Our teachers are those who don't look like us, have tattoos, are gay, struggle with their testimony, have terrible habits. All are our teachers. And none of these teachers get any sort of acknowledgement because it's so subtle, it's so slow, it's so organic, and it happens over long periods of time. So there's never a point where we have a great ceremony like we give our bishops when they're called, which amount to basically a big coronation ceremony, or our stake presidents. There's no marker for any of these teachers No obvious milestones in the growth that we're experiencing because of our interacting with these teachers. And so it almost goes unnoticed. In fact, it does go unnoticed. Almost completely unnoticed by most of us most of the time. But at the end of a period of time, we realize we're different people. We realize we've made breakthroughs, we're different, relationships have evolved, grown, and what bubbles up is a certain honesty, a certain knowing and being known that only these, our true teachers, can bestow upon us. And so in that sense, the church is for the Josephs of the world and for everyone else of the world. It's a forum for all to teach something to someone else. And this can only happen if you go Now, some people say, well, Jack, everyone in my ward is stupid. Or, they're all just superficial and shallow, or they're all just blindly following like robots. And I submit to you that they are there to teach you something. And it's probably more like what Joseph taught the members of my ward, which is how to understand, interact, have compassion for, And be kind to someone who's very different from you. It's not supposed to happen overnight, this learning. It's supposed to take time. It's supposed to bake or grow organically or whatever natural process you want to think of. But what you're going to learn from these people is going to change you viscerally. There'll be no milestones There'll be no bookend-like ceremonies. But one day you'll wake up and you're at peace with someone or some type of person that you previously have had difficulty with. You'll know how to interact and to be kind to people 
like that, who at the beginning of the whole process, you didn't know how to be kind to, you didn't know how to interact with. It'll be so subtle, these changes, that you'll never write a book about it. You may never even acknowledge it, but you will end up a different person. And you'll realize how you've changed as you're driving down the road or as you're riding your bike or watching a TV show or reading a book. It'll just come to you and you'll realize it. This realization, though, in my view, is the still small voice. The still small voice that makes you suddenly realize you're different. You're grown up. You're more mature. You're more compassionate. But it doesn't happen if you don't come to whatever it is that's supposed to teach you. And in this case, my own view is, it's church. It doesn't happen if you don't come to church. If you don't participate. That's what I think anyways. And that's why I participate. That's why I go to church. Now, it's nice, of course, when someone comes up to you and tells you how great of an influence you've been on them and what a great example you've been and lauds you with praise. But if you go to church for that reason, you're going to be disappointed. Because most people just aren't out doing that. Most people just aren't there yet. So don't go to church so that people will praise you. People aren't going to praise you at church. They're too selfish. They're too embroiled in their own problems. They're too, you name it. It's nice too. When you agree with everything that goes on at church, that's nice. But that also doesn't really happen all that often. Even if you agree with all the doctrine, you're not going to agree with all the choices the hierarchy has made in leadership. You're not going to agree with the person teaching you at all times. You're just not going to agree. So don't go to church for that reason, because again, that's not really going to happen either. Don't even go for the rituals or the meeting structures or the planning sessions. Because all those things in my mind are just things to occupy our human brains, our ego brains, while the real work goes on underneath the surface. Go to church instead to be healed, to be changed to learn organically in the forums of those around you. And if you keep going, if you just show up, and if you do it consistently over time, you'll notice that you're changing in good ways. Now, in order to do this, one has to be able to exercise a certain amount of faith and exhibit a certain amount of deference. Deference to some being some entity bigger than you that might just be orchestrating the situations that you're in. That's a big ask for some people. They're unable to give deference to this type of being. And it requires that you have a little bit of faith that this type of being loves you, smart enough, powerful enough, and compassionate enough to make it all worthwhile. That requires requires more faith than some people have. It also requires an ability to set aside your more critical nature. 
to set aside the inner judge, that voice in your head that tells you everything stinks, or everyone's stupid, or you're stupid, or you're not doing what's right, or living up to, or you're wasting your time, or that voice. I'm calling that voice your inner judge, the same way Shurzad Shamanin calls it the inner judge in his excellent book, Positive Intelligence. You have to be able to turn that little voice off, that judge, for at least a little while. And let go and let it all happen. And this is a big ask for most people. Have some faith, exhibit a little deference, and stop judging everything all the time. These are not the attributes that we are taught are going to lead us to great worldly success. Maybe faith is, but certainly not the deference and certainly not letting go of the little judge. But if you want to be able to learn from the Josephs in your life or the multitude of other teachers who have a forum at your ward, you got to be able to do these things. And if you can't, you're going to miss out, not just miss out on the learning you would experience at church, but all the other subtle forums that the teachers in your lives have outside of church. The people that have forums in your family, in your marriage, in your workplace, maybe they're all there for a reason too, and some faith and some deference and some quieting of the judge will go a long way in these spheres as well. And so, to get back to the original question that I'm often asked via email, why do I go to church? The answer is quite simply, I go to church so that I can change. I don't go to church so that I can change church. I go to church to be changed. And I believe the great miracle of church or of family or of any of the forums in our lives, of any of the teachers in our lives, is that growth and development come via very imperfect teachers. And this all represents kind of a cosmic alchemy in my view. Beautiful, wonderful, and miraculous. And I don't really need to believe it anymore. I've experienced it. And as we've mentioned many times in this podcast before, that is the point of life to gain experience. Now, when you talk this way about church, it inevitably leads to questions about truth claims. And it really doesn't matter what church you go to or what synagogue or what mosque, because no matter what you are attending, no matter what the institution, all these places, these religions make some sort of truth claim. And the claim is basically you ought to come here, do what we're doing, because that's what God wants you to do, because God set us up set up our place of worship. And it's through this gate you have to walk. And this gate gets represented by a lot of different things, whether it's baptism, or declaring yourself born again, or saying you believe, or defending the tenets as written down by Muhammad, or whatever it is. My own view, as heretical as this is going to sound, is that these are all ways to just keep our attention, to lure us in, to occupy our human minds, our egos, if you will, while the real work of God happens 
underneath unnoticed. It's kind of like a bait and switch, I suppose. Except it's being orchestrated by a being of benevolence and love. By a magnanimous being that has compassion for us, that wants the best for us. And then one day you realize, like Daniel's son in The Karate Kid, that it's not about waxing the car. Even though that's what the great Mr. Miyagi in the sky has told you to do. That waxing the car has turned you into something much more valuable and able and capable than just a car washer. Then you realize the depth of understanding that Mr. Miyagi, who in this case represents God, that the great Mr. Miyagi in the sky possesses, how deep and profound his understanding is, how shrewd and wise and clever he has been in orchestrating things for you. And it is a form of alchemy, isn't it, that learning to wax a car transforms you into a great fighter. Likewise, attending a very flawed church full of flawed people, a church that makes some outrageous claims at times, can in fact teach you the truth of life. And these truths of life that you learn are much deeper, more profound, and more transformative than any of the original truth claims made by this very flawed church. That is the great miracle of life in my view. Our great foundational stories teach us this from time to time. It appears, for example, that Nephi and Laman and Lemuel are merely on a voyage to the promised land. And Nephi's good, and Laman and Lemuel are bad, and that's that. Or is it? Because later in the Book of Mormon, Nephi is the one who writes the great Psalm of Nephi. In Second Nephi chapter 4, verses 15 to 35, Nephi basically tells us what a terrible person he is. How wretched he is, how quick to anger he is. Well, we never heard about any of this during the early part of the story, did we? His egotistical mind at the beginning was focused on his own performance, his own conformity, his own righteousness, his own faithfulness, his own claims of worthiness. But in the end, he's wretched. Likewise, it's the people of Laman and Lemuel, though described as savages at times, but it's Laman and Lemuel who have this posterity that keeps of law of chastity, has strong families, seems to grow and prosper, and ultimately conquers the Nephites. The Lamanites, it appears, though they have their weaknesses and their faults and their flaws as a people, they do appear, by my reading, to be a happier people in general, a more humble people in general, a more teachable people and ultimately a more successful people than the people of Nephi. We never talk about those symbols, but in my mind, it illustrates this great alchemy. The group of people who thought they were so great because they had the truth ultimately had to learn humility. And the group of people that seemed so savage and decadent and unrefined were in fact more humble and at times happier. I'm not trying to be subversive. I'm just trying to make a point that God uses what he will even if it means distracting us, so that he can do the real work underneath the surface. So I'm slow to laud the apparent Nephi's of the world and appreciate what can be learned from the apparent Lamanites of the world. Figuratively speaking, of course. 
when you look at it this way and you have a little bit of experience, you start to see the mandatory gates that one must walk through as mere metaphor themselves. Metaphors of the real change and progress and transformation that happens during life while we're worried about truth claims. Now, I'm not saying those things don't matter. That bucket of truth claims, that pile of ordinances and requirements. I'm just saying they maybe matter a little bit differently than we think. And I think it's dangerous to get hysterical about them one way or the other. If you take them too literally, you become self-righteous. If you go around saying how stupid they are all the time, you get filled with negativity. Two extremes, and I think God's more interested in the middle way. Life's kind of like that over time. It's a lot like a pendulum back and forth and back and forth until eventually over time, the rustless energy of life gets dissipated and the pendulum slows and eventually becomes very still in the middle. And when it becomes still, then the still small voice can speak to us and help us see what it all means. Because I think one of the jobs of the still small voice is to help explain what you've been through. We like to think of the still small voice as the great fortune teller, forecasting the future, give us an inside edge. But my experience is that the still small voice is as much an explainer of experiences you've already had. And I found in my life that those sort of communications are comforting indeed, which brings meaning to the name of comforter which is most commonly associated with the still, small voice. The comforter. It's the comforter that tells you that everything that's happened to you is okay with purpose. It's the comforter that gives you faith moving forward. And maybe faith is the wrong word. It's the comforter that gives you more confidence moving forward, that whatever's going to happen to you will be okay with purpose. And you can learn and grow and be positive and attend and participate and everything's going to be just fine. Because much of what has happened to you is happening below the surface. You're in a forum of a teacher. Neither the forum nor the teacher expressly recognized by you as significant at times. Yet these things are profoundly changing you. Be it at church, in the family, at your workplace. And you're going through this gate. This gate This rite of passage, this metaphorical ordinance that you must go through to change, to become, to be what you are, what you're intended to be. And it's going to work out and it's going to be fine because God loves you and is way smarter than you are. That's a hard thing to believe when you're going through difficult times, when you're irritated by people, by things, when nothing seems to be working out. It's a hard thing to believe when you feel marginalized, when you've lost a spouse or a job or a home or a child. It's hard to believe at times that something good and divine is happening below the surface, outside of your understanding, beyond your ability to perceive. And I suppose that's what makes those moments when the comforter does come and does give you a little insight A little elucidation on why your path was the way it was. I suppose that's why those moments of insight are so deeply emotional. Because these moments of insights often show us that what we thought was so bad and so terrible and so difficult 
was so powerfully transformative and good and divinely inspired. And things are really good. And sometimes that makes us weep. Because we realize everything is all so much better than what we thought it was. For me, that is the power of the story of Peter. After having denied Christ three times before the cock crew, having seen his friend and divine master crucified, how difficult, terrible, horrible he must have thought all those things were. Impermanently so, I'm sure he thought. And then to see the risen Christ and welcome back into his arms, well, things made sense in the end. And I think things make sense in the end, even if it's way different than how we wanted it to be, how we expected it to be, how we thought it would be. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com. Or find me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Until next time.